Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Jeff Rader tested out his first business idea while at business school, and the lessons he learned provided a kind of template for Harry's, a low-cost, high-quality razor. He told me how he and his co-founder, Andy Katz Mayfield, got started. So Andy and I interned together, and then we worked together after our internships, and then we both went to business school, which you know at the time was a reasonably logical path for us. I got to business school, and pretty early on, one of my good friends there had the idea to sell eyeglasses online. And at the time, my prescription had changed a few times, and I hadn't changed my glasses because they cost so much. I was a student. And so we got excited about the idea of launching our own brand of glasses that helped people really express their own identity through their glasses, selling them directly to customers and doing so at an affordable price. So our price point on glasses was $95, which is like a quarter of what similar glasses are sold for in stores. And we're able to do that because the value chain in glasses had a bunch of different steps in it where there were unnecessary markups. And so we were able to sort of streamline the whole process, design and source our own glasses, and then sell directly to customers. And that company is called Warby Parker and was a really transparent transformative experience for me. The Warby Parker story happened because one of my good friends had worked in healthcare and had seen all of these healthcare models become disrupted by more affordable approaches and had always worn glasses and had believed that there was an opportunity to do that there. It was just an idea that he had. And then he talked to me about the idea. We had no idea that anybody else was doing this it's outside the world. And when we looked around, there were a couple of people who had moderate traction, but nobody who had our vision for building a really distinct brand delivering it to customers in a way that made them feel like it was special, giving back to the community. So we give a pair of glasses away for every pair that we sell. At the same time, you were doing the MBA. <laughs> we were. So we launched the company actually while we were in class, like turned the website on and then went to class, which was a crazy experience. We graduated just barely. And I think that the thing that was great about doing it in school is that we had a group of classmates and professors who really supported us. You know, we'd go talk to professors after class and said, the Coke versus Pepsi case that we're studying in class is interesting, but we actually have a real business problem. Can you help us figure out how to solve this, how to build a brand, how to price our products, how to think about distribution, how to order inventory? And so we used a lot of the knowledge that existed in that community to help us build and launch the brand. And from the moment we turned the site on, we were just blown away by the response. The crazy part for me personally was I had worked at an investment fund before school. They'd paid for me to go to business school, so I knew I had to go back afterwards. So I didn't have debt, but I used debt. So I borrowed some money and then invested it into Warby Parker. And that was one of the ways that we got funding for the early idea for Warby Parker. So it was all of our own funds to go build that company. The idea was born out of a personal frustration and personal pain point, and we had a vision for how to do it better. When we started researching the market, we kind of learned how other people were approaching it, and that helped us figure out how we wanted to be different. And the same thing is true with Harry. So the way that Harry started was I graduated from school. Andy and I had stayed really close, and I talked to him a lot about Warby Parker. And I was back working at investing, but still pretty actively involved Warby Parker on the board and working on it nights and weekends. 
I was feeling more and more, though, like Warby Parker was fun and that working in my day job felt more like work. And so I was wrestling with those things. And Andy called me one day and said, hey, I just had this experience. I went to a drugstore. I waited for 10 minutes for someone to unlock the case where the razors were being held. I paid $25 for four razor blades and some shaving cream. It's not the $25 that really bothers me. It's the fact that I know that these products cost a fraction of that to make. I'm just feeling like I got ripped off. Could you take some of what you guys learned at Warby Parker and do it better here? And I just remember sort of sitting back in my chair and being like, here we go again. It just felt like the early days at Warby Parker. I felt like we could create a better experience around shaving for guys. And maybe having done it once, there was this feeling it may be easier. For sure. I think what was helpful is that there was a roadmap for how to build a brand that we had forged at Warby Parker that we could apply to Harry's. And one of the things I learned in the Harry's process is that it's never one-to-one. There's always nuances in a business that you actually have to really take into account that are important and different. But for sure, I had a perspective for how we could launch the brand and an idea for partners who could be helpful to us, who'd been helpful to us early on at Warby Parker. And so that was very helpful. Harry's is a subscription model. Can you explain So we don't only offer subscriptions. We sell direct online. The reason that we wanted to sell to guys directly was because we felt like there was a real pain point going into the store and having to wait for 10 minutes for someone to unlock that case and then wait in line. And, you know, guys don't like it. They found it to be a traumatic experience. So we felt like we could deliver them a better experience by and large by selling to them online. Online, you can buy two ways from us. We sell a shave set to start and you buy it for $15. It's a, a handle, three blades and shave gel. It's a really good deal, we think, as an opening entree. And then you can come back and reorder however you like. Or you can choose to subscribe. And we make subscription as easy as possible by enabling guys to try a subscription for $3 or less. You get a similar package, and then you're auto-enrolled into a subscription. What we learned is that some guys want to just buy our products and use them over time, and they can do that manually. Other guys value a subscription, but when they're going to go subscribe to something, and they want to subscribe when they start with Harry's, they just want to make sure the products are good enough before they enter into the subscription. And so we've tried to sort of eliminate the barriers to purchase however guys want to. This is not an original idea. There are others in the market and others have failed as well. What do you think it is that's a secret to making Harry's a success? Yeah. So as we thought about Harry's and the brand and the business we want to build, I think there are a few places where we differentiate. The first is on the product itself. Razor blades are like knives that you take to your face. And so they have to be really good. They have to work all the time. We realized that really early on and we actually took 18 months from the idea to launch to figure out how to make great products. First, we started trying everything in the market, literally on ourselves. So A-B test, I'd take a Gillette razor to half my face and something else the other half of my face, and I'd, just, like, I'd try to compare. And in most cases, the other products that we were using weren't very good. And it can be a physically and emotionally scarring experience to use a bad razor. And we were not going to build a brand with a product that we weren't really proud of. So we got obsessed with how razor blades are made. And I ended up one night reading a shaving blog by this guy who was really, really interested and uh, detailed in how double-edged razor blades are made. There was a really reputable brand of German double-edged razor blades that were made at this factory in Germany. They'd never sold in the U.S. before. Um, And I was like, well, if these guys can make great double-edged blades, could they also make other razor blades? And so I ended up finding this factory. It looked like they had some other products and some more advanced technology And there was no set of connections that we had that could get us to rural central Germany. So finally, I just picked up the phone and I called them and I said, hey, I started this company in the U.S. called Warby Parker. It's had some success. I think there's a really interesting model here in shaving. We need a partner, a true partner. Could we come and meet you? And luckily, they were willing to have a meeting with us. So Annie and I flew to Germany. We had a business plan and we said, look, this is how we're thinking about 
disrupting this market. We need great products. Can we get some of your products? Can we try them? And then can we enter into an exclusive agreement where we would create a custom product for Harry's that we think could really work in this market? And over six months, we developed a relationship with them and ended up locking into a contract. And the crazy thing is, to lock into this contract, we had to buy a million razor blades. We wanted all of these special things. And to get those special things, you need to get some scale. And so we committed to buying a million razor blades. We didn't have the money. And then we came back to the U.S. and had to raise the money in like the cor- over the course of a month uh, to then go buy the blades. But we had a plan that we believed in and a contract with what we thought was the best independent factory in the world. And so we were lucky enough to get other people to believe in us. And it was these two American business school yeah. graduates from the tech startup yeah. world, really, right. meeting a group of industrialist Germans. That's right. Germany is not known for its business they, school history. They, they I mean, us, how do those two They called together? us the American Internet Boys to start. And so we had to take time to build trust. It's why it took six months. We went over a number of times. Andy had this long, long dinner one night in the German forest with one of the guys who was running the factory where they just, I think, bared their souls to each other and said, look, like we're really committed to making this work. And I think at the end of the day, what we did is shared a set of values that were really important. We wanted to make a really, really high quality product and we're not going to compromise there. We wanted to try to change the market together in an important way. And we realized that we were going to have to make significant mutual commitments to each other. And we tried to do that and kind of put our money where our mouth was by making big orders and sticking to that and paying on time. So we raised uh, initially raised $4 million to make the first purchase of blades. Plus, we had to design our own handles. We launched with a shave cream. We built an initial team. We knew this was going to be a big swing, and so we wanted to make sure that we were well capitalized to get there. And who were the kind of people who were backing you for that? Venture capitalists in the U.S., people with whom we'd had relationships at Warby Parker. The nice thing about Warby Parker was we had a lot of investor interest there. And I had a sense for the investors who we liked most, who we thought added a lot of value. And so I went to them first. And I felt like those investors could be both great partners to Harry's and also clearly a good source of capital. And I think fast forward a year, we'd launched Harry's and we had had a lot of traction. You know, we were kind of blown away by the response at launch and people really liked our products. We were really pleased with the rate at which people were coming back to reorder. So we realized that this factory was just so strategic to the business on a couple fronts. One, we were going to grow faster than we'd initially expected, and so we actually had to expand capacity there. And two, we believed we could continue to innovate and make our products better and better. We had a product that people really liked, and we had great customer feedback on how we could improve it. And so we went to Germany, and we said, hey, guys, we need way more capacity, and we want to innovate and make the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. And that led to conversations with us and them about forming a JV for Harry's that would be a separate production line and sort of innovation lab. And then ultimately, those led to conversations where we bought the entire factory. And so when we were less than a year old, we raised another $100 million in both equity and debt and bought this factory. We had 30 people in New York and all of a sudden 420 people in Germany as part of this company. At the time, it felt a little bit crazy, although it felt really important. And I think today we count our lucky stars that we did it because now we've created a truly vertically integrated company that can do everything from grind steel to deliver products to customers and talk to them and understand how we can continue to improve experience across that entire spectrum. But this is a market where there are two enormous companies. It's really a sort of duopoly. Lots of people have tried and failed in razor blades. How do you think you're going to prosper in in this market? I think the reason that the marketplace got to where it got was actually because of the industry structure. We don't think that the companies that existed today put their customers first. They kept on launching new innovations, taking price, 
and not essentially doing what's right for the customer. We asked people there, how do you get away with charging $5 for a razor blade? And like, well, it's only 25 cents a shave and you pay $5 for your mocha at Starbucks every morning. And we're like, but people like that experience. And what they don't like is paying $5 from you. We know you're taking advantage of us. And I think for us, what we want to do first is just put the customer first. So we design products that we think make people proud to use them every day, and we design them ourselves. We sell them for half the price of the competition. We let people buy them however they want to buy them. They can buy them online. We now sell a Target in the U.S. so they can buy them in stores if they want to. And then we take all the customer feedback that we get And we use that to drive strategy. We don't think about how we're going to make more money here and more money there. We take our entire customer life cycle, put it on the board, and we say, this could be better, and this could be better, and this could be better. And then we go focus there. And we think that if we continue to do what's right for our customers, that we can continue to win in this marketplace in competition with companies that clearly have not in the past. These big companies have real weaponry in terms of marketing. They can undercut you for short periods. What can you do? I think for us, what we need to do is build a brand that people believe in and think differently about. The way I view the utility that we're adding to the world at Harry's is a function of the number of customers we have and how happy they are. And at Harry's today, we have over 3 million customers in the U.S., and they are, by and large, significantly happier with Harry's than where they were before. There was just a study that was done that looked at all of the brands in shaving, and we had the highest customer satisfaction by a wide margin, almost 2x to 1 over Gillette then how do we continue to sort of further that proposition? Well, we try to make sure that we make our products better and better. We've continued to innovate on our products in Germany, and we've launched new products, but we haven't changed the price. And so we're just creating a better value equation, and that's disruptive into the way that razor blades have usually worked. And then we try to think about how and where we can be different from the competition. You know, here's an example. When we launched in Target, we just launched with one razor blade. And we only have one razor blade at Harry's. It's a five-blade product. It's the best possible product we can make. We continue to try to make it better every day. If you look at the shelf in the store, every other brand has like 10 different blades. You don't know what the difference is. Harry's is just simple and clean. It's just Harry's. And I think that's enabled us to be successful because we understand that guys just value that simplicity and we're able to deliver to them in a new environment, retail for us, but in a compelling way. And so I think we need just to continue to think about how and where we can differentiate ourselves from everything else that's out there. I asked Heidi Knack, Professor of Entrepreneurial Studies at Babson College in the U.S., how a tiny startup like Harry's is able to compete with long-established incumbents like Gillette. Well, you know, it's interesting because you asked Jeff this question, and he sort of answered it, and then he kind of evaded it a little bit. But what I was expecting him to say is that Gillette is such a giant that it can't adapt very quickly. It has too much infrastructure, too many processes in place, too much of a large global distribution network in place that I don't think they could actually do what Harry's is doing quite easily without disrupting their own model. And that's going to take a little while for them to do. At the same time, both Jeff and Andy, I think you even said it, it's not an original idea, but you certainly don't need an original idea to succeed considering the opportunities they found in the value chain They certainly are making a better product at a lower cost. That's generating extreme value for the customer. They're making the experience far more convenient. I mean, not only are they doing it, they started with subscription, but then they went to just direct online. And now it seems like they're in one of our major retailers, Target, here in the United States. I think they really are focusing on doing one thing and doing it very well, keeping their brand simple and keeping it clean. And... 
you know, a lot of the big companies forget to put their customers first. And with the small startup, one thing that startups do very well is put their customers first, and they're going to develop this following. I mean, I know they bought the German plant, but time will only tell if they can actually expand capacity to meet the market needs. What Gillette has, though, is money. And people think that money trumps other things. Is that not the case? Well, I don't know if Jeff and Andy don't necessarily have the money. If they have a proven business model, they've invested and raised over $100 million to buy the factory. Their sales are growing. Their customer loyalty is there. And so I think there's money to be had from investors for Harry's, where for Gillette to compete, I would imagine they'd have to change a lot of different things. Plus, what Jeff and Andy do have is they do have proprietary knowledge on the technology on their blade, so they're going to have some runway there. I would agree there's going to be a challenge there, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But they do have brand recognition. It's a simple and clean brand targeting men who don't like to make retail decisions. So I think Jeff was talking about, you know, you go into a Target and there's 15 different types of Gillette razors. What are you going to choose? When you know that Harry's is a good product, has proprietary blade technology, it's simple and it's cheap. So I think less is more in this situation. I think Harry's is going to play out for quite a long time. I think there's already some competitors in the marketplace for Harry's. So that's just more evidence that the business model is viable. Gillette is a much more diversified company, but for so many years, people have subscribed to the revenue model called the razor and the razor blade model, where you pretty much give away the razor very cheap and you're going to make all your margin on the razor blade model. We see that in desktop printers as well. You're making all your money on the ink. You know, business models evolve and Customers aren't going to tolerate the razor and razor blade model if options exist. The digital revolution, going direct to the customer over the Internet, that's only growing. There's no signs of that slowing down. We're very much comfortable buying online than we've ever been before, and that comfort's only going to grow. I think retail overall is being disrupted by buying online. What will these big retail stores become? Are they just places where you can touch the product and then you immediately go and order online and everything's just shipped to you? It's a fascinating time to kind of watch retail evolve right now. But I don't see businesses like Harry slowing down. What does Jeff think are the most useful lessons he'd share with other would-be founders? I think a few things. One is, like, you have to be all in. And you have to be all in on this one idea. I've got a couple of friends who are trying to start like three or four businesses right now. And I'm like, guys, this isn't going to work. You have to be really deeply committed to making this company work. It is all consuming and you have to love it. Like I love my job so much. I tell our team that success at Harry's is just a means to an end for me. The end is I get to continue to do my job. And so I think that that's one thing that's really important. I think too, you have to invest in having amazing people around you. My job at Harry's has gone from having a vision for where this could go and working on the little details of the business to building and hiring an amazing team of people and then empowering them to be successful. And what's so clear to me is when you have really great people and they want to do a great job, that whether or not they do is all based on if you've created a system that lets them be successful. And when people struggle at work, it's because their expectations of their job aren't clear, how their role works with other people aren't clear, maybe their skill set isn't the exact right fit, etc. And when 
they do succeed, it's the opposite. It clicks. Their job is clear to them. They understand how they're supposed to collaborate with people. They've got a great skill set. And my job is to put people in that second bucket in roles where they can be super successful and then help to coach them to get there. I probably spend 80% of my time on people and how our organization works together because fundamentally that's what matters most. And so as I talk to other people who have built companies, we end up just invariably talking about people and team and how we get people to work together. And that is complicated and hard and it changes in a growing company. It changes every three months or six months. We literally have to reinvent processes and as new people come in, reinvent the way that they work with others in order to facilitate you know, effective collaboration. Next week, we talk to another couple of close friends who started a business together after first having a career in the military and then cutting their teeth with other businesses. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.